Welcome to Executive Tools, the Executive S-Curve, Chapter 1, From Yes to No, Part 1. This cast answers these questions. How do I manage my workload as an executive? How can I protect my priorities as an executive? What can I do about feeling like there's too much to do? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Here we go. You Mark, as managers, the generally accepted thinking is that work rolls downhill, right? We hear that yeah. all, all, all the time. Usually I felt that. Usually you it's not it? work. I, it's some other it? word, but I whatever. It. I think um, we've got chemistry. Yeah, but when it comes to your, you, you're, you're obligated to accept it, right? When work comes down to you, you're obligated, yeah. Right, but that's, that's not true for executives. Executives are on a different S-curve, and different S-curves demand different behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think as managers, we have to accept most of the taskings. Some of that is because of executives, which we'll get to. Um, But you're right. For an executive, it's different. Managers have to say yes, or almost always do have to say yes. But executives ought to start by saying no. And it's just one of those things that goes with S-curves, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit in this cast. Yeah, don't get too excited, folks, if you're one of those people just talking doesn't want to work. (laughs) That's not not exactly what we're saying here. So I want to spend a minute talking about S-curve theory because it's significant uh, relative to the change from manager to executive. uh, Because part of executive tools is not just talking about executive life, but talking about the transition and understanding the differences and the similarities and so on. I think we've promised that for the last several years, haven't we, Mike? Isn't that? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, (laughs) good. Yeah, the executive move is to a different S-curve. One of the ways, that's why this calls chapter one, is where you go from yes to no. And you're going to have to have priorities to do it. Saying no requires priorities to defend yourself. And we'll talk about that. Okay. We've talked about the S-curve theory before, for sure. But Oh, sure. Uh, but probably a significant amount of time ago. So tell us about the S-curve theory. Yeah. Well, what, the reason I decided to go back over it is because I think in the past when we've talked about it, it's always been related to or supportive of, but it's not been so clearly an illustrative tool, right? Right. Um, so yeah, so we're going to spend a minute on it. So when you become an executive, things change. Hopefully everybody knows that. We don't have to spend too much time talking about that. And hopefully, you know, it changes a lot. And for many people, One of the problems with the discontinuity, you're going to hear me say that word a lot during this cast, folks, with the discontinuity between manager and executive is they don't know. Becoming an executive is a lot more than it being a simple stepwise growth in your career. Most people assume that only happens, you know, you're you're a manager, you're senior manager, okay, you're an executive, but you still have managerial responsibilities, and then you become CEO, hypothetically. But Becoming an executive is an important step, and it's not a stepwise, and I say here I use the word step, but in fact, it's not a stepwise change. It's a state change, and we need a way to think about it and talk about it, and for me anyway, for the last 25 years coaching executives, the best principle that applies is the S-curve. So, S-curves. S-curves are a common tool to model organic or organism growth. If you model growth over time for organic systems like our organizations, they're not called mechanizations, they're called organizations for a reason. If you model growth over time, it's not a straight line. 
there's a period of very slow growth in the beginning. Basically, that's the base of the S, the bottom of the S. It's a relatively, it's not an S with, with a, a loop on the top and the bottom. It's more, you could almost make the case if it were angular, it would be, I guess, a backward Z almost, or a smushed backward Z. But there's a relatively flat line in the beginning. That's followed by a period of relatively fast growth, the steep part of an S going up. And then finally, at some point, growth ebbs, and the line at the top of the S is relatively flat, somewhat similar to the bottom. And we're going to make the case here, we're going to talk about organizations for a minute, because organizations and organisms behave very similarly, mm -hmm. because organizations are filled with organisms, us, us carbon-based life forms. And then we're going to make a case, it's also true for innovation, and in fact, this is S-curves are really common discussions in innovation. And I actually think that for most people, it's easier for them to think about innovation. But I'll tell you what, Mike, I have learned from talking to people that people don't ascribe human behavioral tendencies, changes, principles, systems, thinking to innovation, even though innovation is essentially human, right? right? Or it's organic. I mean, nature innovates, uh, but in a very different way than we do. But yeah. Yeah, machines don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get some mail about smart machines and how f the future of machines and so on. But it will all be based on human input, right? To make those machines, quote, smart, unquote. So I want to focus rather than talking about innovation, because again, as I said, when I talk to people, it's like innovation. They just look at me funny. And I think that's because it's not because these people aren't smart. It's because too many people think innovation is a thing other people do. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, he's creative. She's not really creative. And, I, you know, my experience is completely untrue. Right? Right. Uh, often we ascribe creativity to someone who behaves in a certain way in their personal choices, their dress, their demeanor, and so on. And that's not been my experience at all. Yeah, there's a whole, whole lot of people. There's a lot of high C's, right, that people wouldn't oh. describe as creative. B because they follow the rules, right? Yeah. That's right. But they come up with all sorts of interesting and new yeah. innovations around processes. Exactly. And exactly. Which, is, which is innovation. But anyway, I don't think I can make that case as easily as I make the case for organizations. So the history of organizations, human stuff, is riddled with companies who rode a product or a suite of related products, S-curves, up the steep curve and thinking, wow, this is great. Look at us. We're all going to be billionaires. I think that's pretty much everybody's life in Silicon Valley. And then failing to react at the top of the curve when the growth stagnates. Okay. Well, that's an organic process because it's driven by organic creatures. And look, guys, I, I, I don't think I've ever used this example before, but it's a classic sort of hackneyed phrase. The original example, I think, of this in the early 20th century is the buggy whip manufacturer <laughs> whose business was made obsolete by the automobile, right? Frankly, when you look at the history of human organizations, it's far more likely the companies fall in love with the organic steep part of the growth curve, the S curve, and then fail because they fail to react to the inevitable. 
organically deterministic power of the S-curve. And that's why the vast majority of organizations, human, organic entities, all of them, don't last. They don't. The history of organizations, the history of capitalism is uh, creative destruction. I think Schumpeter said that first. Um, every act of creation is an act of destruction, and you have to be willing to reinvent yourself. And if you don't, outside forces will destroy you. But when you think about what many people, I think you and I would agree, are successful corporate organizations, ones that last and lasting I hope those of you who have been listening to Executive Tools for a while and probably heard the hints in Manager Tools as well, that when you hear that word lasting, it's important because that is the purview of the executive to help the organization last, to get the organization 5, 10, 15 years into the future. There's all kinds of people who will tell you, social commentators who will tell you that's not so, and they're wrong and you should ignore them. And, and the ones that last adapt to the life cycle of products and innovations. Look, GE, one of the greatest managed companies in the history of the world until the last five to seven years, started as an electric motor and a lighting company. Most people, I told somebody the other day, well, that's Edison's company. And they said, Edison? I said, yeah, Edison started General Electric. Really? Did he? I said, yeah. He figured out a way to build filaments for light bulbs that would allow the world to have light, electric light. Um, and he needed a company to monetize it. That was the one. They said, oh, I thought he was an inventor. I said, he, he, yeah. he was. Yeah, he was. He was a fairly prolific inventor. Um, but he also started a company, GE. And, and basically, they were in the electric motor and the lighting business, and those markets matured. And so guess what? They switched. GE created RCA. Radio Corporation of America, I think, is the, what the acronym is. And, and, and they moved into what? televisions. Why? Because they realized that you weren't going to grow, which is important for long-term success, as an electric motor and a lighting company. Because at some point, everybody had all the lights, and we certainly hadn't invented halogen lighting then, or for that matter, LEDs. So they created RCA, then they moved into power generation, and then power transmission as well. And later into medical devices and locomotives and turbine engines too, because of their expertise. GE's leadership, the executives there knew that as the markets and people they served changed, they had to change as well. Every one of those changes was an S-curve. The product was introduced, people don't know about it, people learn about it and then discover, wow, this really serves a, a valuable purpose for me and the growth is generated and wow, aren't things great? And then suddenly there's not as much growth. Everybody wants a rocket ship to the moon. Actually, what people want is a rocket ship to Alpha Centauri or something like that. And it's like, dudes, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't. Microsoft, same thing, started out selling a disk operating system. Most people have heard of the phrase MS-DOS, that stands for Microsoft Disk Operating System. Pretty sure, actually, they didn't even invent it. I think they bought it from Seattle Computing Company for $50,000. Um, but based on that, uh, Bill Gates and those other executives at the firm saw that there was something bigger that's going to happen, and they moved into computer personal computer operating systems, Windows. 
which is very different than MS-DOS. Then they developed software to run on Windows, probably most notably Microsoft Office, which I have referred to many times as my operating system. I didn't even care about Windows. I just wanted Office to run. Then they moved into corporate software, and then they moved into the internet browsing world. And what do you know? Look at the S-curve. Despite the one-time dominance, which I know I'll get emails saying, well, it was because they were monopolistic and so on. Yeah, okay. We can argue about that some other time. Uh, despite the one-time dominance of Microsoft Explorer, today, Internet Explorer is gone. And I think Bing has a significantly lower market share, right? Much mm. smaller. I imagine Bing does, but I haven't. Yeah. I hadn't even heard that word for a long time. That's how low it is. So, is that? Yeah, it doesn't even register. Is what you're not, saying? Not for me. No. Nope, yeah, it does not. Mike, I said Microsoft Edge. That's their search. Or I said Microsoft Bing. That's their search engine. I use. I actually use Microsoft Edge. I've told you about this, right? Oh, I don't know. No. I yeah. Don't. So, so uh, I found Apple's calendar to be incredibly not useful. I found it kludgy in a lot of ways. And I noticed that a lot of you guys, a lot of colleagues here at MT were looking at their calendar online, which made sense because we Google calendar is our core calendar system. It's our calendaring system, right? And, and Fantastical or Outlook or anything else would be in, would be served by that, right? That's right. Yeah. It's the client, it's the server and we're the client. Well, I had a problem with that leaving my my calendar open because I have to have my calendar open all day. I had what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten appointments or meetings and things to do today on a Friday. And that's not a heavy day. And so what I discovered was if I use Safari for that, if I ever clicked on my calendar and then I wanted to do something in my browser, it would open up a new window and window in Safari covering up my calendar. So my solution was, I'm going to use a different browser. No, I don't use Chrome. Everybody says I should use Chrome. No, thank you. Um, and so I use Bing, and the only thing Bing does, I'm sorry, I use Edge, and the only <laughs> thing Edge, Microsoft Edge does is show me my calendar. Interesting. And, of course, from the Google website. Yeah, so I was wrong about Bing. Sorry, it's Edge. Um, but look, back to the, the main story. Organizations that thrive, it's a popular word right now, thriving, what we mean when we say that is organizations that last, recognize that to last, they have to realize that they cannot ride only one S-curve. This is part and parcel of why you hear people say entrepreneurs don't scale. It's because they have the one great product. It turns out successful. But in order to build an organization that outlasts the founder, you have to jump on different S-curves. Um, everything stops growing at some point, in part because all things are decaying. Even things that are growing are also decaying. And successful organizations know they have to embrace the decay and move to a different S-curve and start the growth process again. So when you look at a model that talks about company history or innovation history, and I'm suggesting the model or the image will apply to careers as well, it's a series of stacked S's moving from the bottom left to the upper right. There's an S that starts at, say, X, Y, 0, 0, and ends, at, let's say, X is Y, 
X is five. Y is, y is five. The new S curve starts at X is four, Y is four. You start investing in the new uh, innovation before you're completely dead. And then the growth curve goes up after you reach X5, Y5, and then it flattens out and you do another one at, let's say, X9, Y9. And you essentially keep picking up over and over and over again, a la the GE story, a la the Microsoft story. Yeah, leads to the saying, you know, innovate or die, right? That's yeah, exactly. kind of where it happens. Change or die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in my opinion, perhaps one of the most important and at the same time least understood, which is exactly why we're here to address stuff like this for folks, one of the most important and least understood systemic influences in our professional organizations and our professional lives and our careers is the necessity to understand the S-curve. And to address our discontinuities by moving to a new learning curve, a new set of principles, a new S-curve when it is time. And because careers within organizations, again, organizations, organic creatures, humans, adhere to the forces involved in S-curves, it's inevitable that this falls out. But I don't hear anybody else talking about this. Look, even learning a skill obviously associated with careers generally adheres to the S-curve. We start slowly slowly about something. We not only don't know a lot, but we don't even know what we don't know when we start something new. Then we develop some basic knowledge, and we build rapidly on that. Because now with the basis of knowledge, we have a template or a filter to compare new information to to understand whether or not it makes sense based on what we've learned about the fundamentals of the system we're engaging in or the thing we're trying to learn about. And we build rapidly and we shoot up our own learning S-curve. And at some point, we think we know what we need to know. And then learning slows. In fact, you and I have talked about this relative to you teaching yourself guitar, that you, you learn some basic stuff. You felt like you were learning really good. You get to the top and then suddenly you discover... Oh, my. Oh, yeah, I know nothing. Uh, You know nothing, right? And I think you told me once, you used to be very involved in a a martial arts school. And one of the things you told me, which shocked me, I'd never heard it before, you and your family were all doing martial arts, was that actually, generally speaking, among serious martial artists, you don't actually start learning until you become a black belt. Right. You don't and know course, enough to learn. Yeah. Like that. And, and literally, it. it occurred to me, I thought about this after the fact, very cynically. I thought to myself, oh, all those other colored belts, they're just marketing. <laughs> right? Don't, don't, I, I don't get not. me started. Don't get no, me started. No, I mean, I, I, I get it. A, a blue belt is better than a this belt or whatever, right? Purple is better than orange. Well, dude, dude. Black, whatever. Dude, they're all designed just as a way of, yeah, you got to pay another hundred bucks to take your blue yeah. belt test. I mean, I'm sorry. That sounds bad, but. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is what everyone else is thinking of as the top of the scale is just the end of the first S-curve. And and you could even model that first S-curve from nothing to black belt as a series of very small S-curves embedded within it, where you go from blue to orange to purple to white. Please, folks, don't school me on the colors. I've never done martial arts. Well, you know why they're black. You know why it's a black belt, right? Where the, no, why, I don't. Why is the color black? No, I don't. Because back, way back when, the only belt you ever got was white. And 
at some point uh, over the years it became darker and darker and dirtier and dirtier and it's black and, and so black belt was like oh that guy's been doing this a long time yeah He's exactly a black belt. yeah okay that's cool i didn't know that see yeah i don't know what i don't know my belt's gray <laughs> <laughs> mine would start gray and get grayer and look we've said this many times guys you don't stop learning when you get old you get old when you stop learning. Companies are organic, just like we are. And when companies stop learning, they too get old and they die. An unstrategic defiance of martial law, as somebody famous once said. Now, look, when they die, sometimes they get bought for assets, intellectual property, a core of valuable employees, which is in some ways equivalent to a death. Well, they didn't actually die. Somebody bought them. Well, they bought them because it was cheap to buy them because the assets were worth more than the actual company as an operating entity. So that's our case for careers following S-curves. Now let's talk about the executive piece of that. All right. Yeah. How does that relate to executives? Yeah. So obviously the leaders of organizations need to understand the organic life cycle of ideas and of markets, but our careers are part of the organizational life cycle. It, as I've said before, it couldn't be any other way. And there are generally folks four S curves involved in your careers. The first S curve is the beginning of your professional life. That's starting your first job, if you will. Most of us certainly felt the uncertainty and discontinuity inherent in our first job. It, it, the classic example would be finishing a tertiary school, college, university, and then starting your professional life, in, in some cases being recruited out of school. That's S-curve, and it's learning associated with it, generally lasts until your promotion to a managerial role. There are some exceptions, but generally that's true. And there are all kinds of related effects associated with this. And we'll explore that, obviously, in Manager Tools podcast. Becoming a manager is your second discontinuity in your career. Uh, it's the second S-curve you get on. And you have to recognize that. For those of you who've listened to our years of Manager Tools guidance, you know where we stand on the discontinuity. It's a shame. You're not alone in feeling adrift and uncertain. That's that S-curve discontinuity working on you. You thought you knew, and now you discover, no, I really didn't know, and I'm not on a new S-curve. When you get that feeling, you've got to start thinking about investing and climbing back up the steep part. That's the only way to go. Well, it's not the only way. It's the only, um, only way to achieve longevity in one's career. Let's put it that way. Frankly, Mike and I could go on for hours about it, but after over 500 hours of manager tools casts and a million words talking about all the things that organizations don't teach and that manager tools exist to help you with, we're going to leave that to the manager tools podcast. Um, obviously, becoming an executive is our third possible S-curve discontinuity. The change to becoming an executive for the billionth time is not a stepwise change, it's a state change as our two previous ones, starting your career and becoming a manager, were. When you become an executive, you won't be prepared for it, just like those other discontinuities. By the way, I know that some of you are going to write me, so I want to tip our hat to you that you're going to say, well, actually, that's not true. Thanks to manager tools, I did know what I was getting into when I became <laughs> a manager. 
you learned how to manage by listening before you became a manager. And that's embracing the discontinuity and recognizing the impending new S-curve that's headed your way. And I'm so glad we have been able to help so many people. And also, as we said before, do we have lots of evidence that organizations specifically prepare managers to become executives? What's, the, what's our resounding answer to that? Oh, heck no. And do we think they're going to teach us once we're already executives? Oh, heck no. But our workload is still going to triple. We're going to lose a third of our calendar. The time on our calendar is going to get eaten up by other executive-related stuff, which, by the way, we need to go to. You can't just blow them off because we need to go to them because when you get closer to the top of an organization, virtually everything becomes highly collaborative. And if you don't have the relationships by being in meetings with other people and creating those trusting relationships, you won't be able to get anything done because you can't get anything done by yourself. One of the reasons, though, that moving to executive is not as tough a promotion as the one to manager is because many managers are made executives but never embrace the discontinuity, and organizations are not clear about the delineation. And frankly, a lot of managers basically try to be an executive by behaving like managers or super managers, and it doesn't work. The final S-curve discontinuity, I, I'm wondering if people figured out that I said there were four, but we've only gotten to three with executive. The final discontinuity career-wise, and it only happens to a very few people, but it happens, is the move from executive to CEO. Uh, it's rare, but it's still enormous. Um, we have said for years that the toughest promotion is from individual contributor to manager. Now, as an aside, I'm going to tell you, Whenever I say that, I get email, which, and so I always have this caveat. Anytime I say that, the caveat is many people are going to say the toughest promotion is from being a peer to being a manager. But I can tell you, I can easily disprove that hypothesis. It's a stupid hypothesis. It's been disproven for 50 years, but whatever. People are still saying it because people don't know what they don't know. Here's an example. Mike and I are both managers. He gets promoted to become a director. We're friends. And he gets promoted to become a director. In other words, a manager of managers. Is he going to think that's a hard promotion? No, he's not. We were friends. He understands that we can't be friends in the same ways we were before, even though we've known each other for 40 years. And he knows, and I know, he's my boss. And in fact, if I'm truly his friend, the first thing I'll do is try to figure out how to help him succeed. The person who's your peer and doesn't get the job, and you do, and then they work against you? I would argue you have to look back at your past and wonder whether or not they were really a true friend. Mm -hmm. So maybe in hindsight, what I would have been better off saying is uh, the toughest promotion for virtually all of us is from individual contributor to manager. There are just so few promotions to CEO that it doesn't compare to the pain and suffering that individual contributor manager does. The promotion from executive to CEO is the toughest of all of the discontinuities. Yeah. I just saw something today. Uh, we were talking about a client, and uh, that was exactly the transition this person was making. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's tough. Very tough. All right, my friend. Why don't we stop here and pick up later? Good. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thank you.